The Queen is dead. Long live the King. Well, it was with such a proclamation or words to that effect that we entered the reign of Charles III on the 8th of September 2022, just a couple of months ago. It was a long time coming, of course, pretty well his whole lifetime, uh, and most of mine too, because I'm just one year older than King Charles. But now it's here, what he'd been waiting for all his life. And so for those of us who are British citizens, we who were living in the reign of Elizabeth II have now entered the kingship of her son. We have entered the reign of Charles III. Well, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who was a carpenter's son from Nazareth, began proclaiming this in the land of Galilee. He said, it's here what you've been waiting for all your lifetime. It's here, I'm here, and the reign of God has begun, which I think you'll agree was a rather more important announcement. That's in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the beginning of Mark's gospel, which is where we've been for some time. In fact, uh, it was just over a year ago that uh, Charlie here was preaching on that very text in Mark chapter 1, which you want to look at back. It's there in verse 15. Uh, and Jesus was announcing the kingdom of God has come. But you see, that's, that's what it means. The reign of God has begun. We need to just get a little bit clear what the kingdom of God actually is. Uh, it's not a place. It's not a thing. It's not another word for heaven, even though in Matthew's gospel he talks about the kingdom of heaven, but that's because the Jewish people at that time preferred to use the word heaven rather than the name of God, and so it still means the reign of God. It means an active thing. It's reign or rule. It means God being king, God doing his king thing, God at work, God in charge, God executing his sovereignty as king, not a constitutional monarchy exercised through somebody else, uh, as our beloved king is, but the real king. And so says Jesus, therefore, to enter into the kingdom of God doesn't mean that we're going somewhere else, like to heaven or something, any more than when we enter into the reign of Charles III doesn't mean we're all going to live in Buckingham Palace. No, it means that we come into a relationship with God as our King. We acknowledge Him in King Jesus as our Lord, as our King, as our Savior. We're going to live by His rules and follow His character. And that's what it means to enter into His kingship. And that's what Jesus called people to do in the rest of that verse back there in chapter 1, verse 15. He said, the kingship of God, the reign of God has come, so repent, believe the gospel, and follow me. Or as Charlie put it, if you were here back in September last year, he says, pick a side, turn back from your old way of life and put your trust in me and in my message. But what we've been seeing over these last few weeks is that Jesus is all very well to talk about this kingdom of God thing, but it's all a bit confusing. And, you know, how can you really say it's happening? And so Jesus now, in these two parables that we were just read to us, He's going to explain something. Well, if the Lord is king, then what is it like? What do you expect, as it says on the screen? Well, actually, they were expecting rather a lot. In fact, they were expecting too much for right now. Uh, 
You see, what we need to realize here is that when Jesus was explaining the kingdom of God to the people of his day, it's not because they'd never heard of it before. It's actually because they had. They knew all about it from the songs that they sang every Sabbath day in the synagogue where they would sing the psalms, from the words of the prophets that were read out to them. We sang something about those in one of our songs a few minutes ago. And from the prayers, especially the prayers that they prayed in the synagogue every Sabbath. And I'll read you one in a moment, not just right now. Because what I want to do at this point is to, if you'll forgive me for entering into a kind of teacher mode for a moment, is to just give us a little bit of background because we do need to see what the scriptures of Jesus, what we now call the Old Testament, meant when they talked about the reign of God or the kingship of God. So here we go, a very quick survey of what it meant. Here it is, this is the first one. The Lord is king, it meant, and I use this word the Lord God because I'm talking not just about God in a very general sense, but about the Lord. His name was sometimes Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord God, the God of Israel. First of all, that the Lord God is king over all the earth, sovereign king of all nations, all creation, all history. In fact, that's exactly what we were singing about just a few minutes ago. King of kings, Lord of lords. They believed that. Here's a few quick verses uh, which you might want to jot down or take a photo of the screen or something to see later. But King Hezekiah, who was king in Judah, he said, Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. Second Kings chapter 19, verse 15. Or Psalm 99, like many of the other Psalms, says, the Lord reigns. So let the nations tremble because he sits enthroned between the cherubim. So let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. And you can read many other such Psalms like Psalm 145 and others that say the same thing. So it is to speak then of the, the kingdom of God in this sense is simply to affirm that God rules. God is sovereign in his providence, in his governance of all creation, of all that happens whether by his direct willing it to happen or by his permission. But of course, the problem is that God has been king over all creation ever since creation, but we human beings chose to rebel against God, to reject his kingship, and we plunged our world into all the suffering and sin and violence and evil that we see around us. And so that brings us, therefore, to a second sense in which God was king in the Old Testament, and that is that the Lord God is king over his people, Israel. This is the particular sense of God's kingship. See, God chose Abraham, and through Abraham created the people, Israel, there in the Old Testament. Through them, God would bring blessing to all the nations on the earth. That was God's plan. And so God entered into this relationship with Israel as their king. It's the kind of language that is used. They would be his people. He would be their God and king, especially since he had rescued them out of Egypt under the authority and tyranny of the Pharaoh of Egypt. You remember that Moses brought them out. And in Exodus 15, verse 18, at the end of the great song of Moses, we read, the Lord reigns forever. Not Pharaoh anymore. The Lord is king. And so he became their sovereign, their Lord, their king. In fact, this is what they said about him in, in Isaiah chapter 33. We read this, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It's he who will save us. He's our protector. He's our judge. He's our lawyer. He's the king of our people. And that's what it was, you see, for Old Testament Israel. 
I know that some of you here have been uh, attending the Roots course uh, here at, at All Souls, and you've been looking at this whole issue with this book by Vaughan Roberts, uh, The Big Picture, God's Big Picture, and you've been thinking all these last weeks about precisely this, the kingdom of God, which he describes as God's people in God's place under God's rule which is what it was for Old Testament Israel, God's people living in God's land under God's kingship. Or at least, that's how it was supposed to be. But sadly, even those people so often rebelled against God, going right back to when they wanted a king to be like all the other nations, and God had to tell Samuel at that time in the third passage on the screen in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, where God says, it's not you they've rejected, Samuel, it's me. They've rejected me as their king and have been doing so all the way through their history. So that brings us, therefore, to the third aspect of this, because because the human kings of Israel were so many of them such failures, and because Israel kept rebelling against God as king, and because the nations didn't know that the Lord was king anyway, there develops this hope, this third element of kingship in the Old Testament, which is that the Lord God will himself come as king one day to put everything right. This was the future sense of God's kingship. This was the great hope that they had, that the Lord God would come. These are the kind of things that they said. In Ezekiel 34, God says, look, these kings that you've had all these years, they're called shepherds, which is another word for kings. He says, these shepherds are just ruining the flock. They're they're a mess. They're a disgrace. So God says, tell you what, I myself will shepherd my people. I will rescue them. I will bring them out. I will tend my flock. I will look after my sheep. I will shepherd these people. So when Jesus said, do you remember in John's gospel, that I am the good shepherd, he's making a claim to be the true king of Israel, God himself. And God goes on, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will tend them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. So God comes as king, but says, I'll also send a king like David. Here comes Jesus, David's son, and the Lord has come. That's Ezekiel 34. The psalm said, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, the third on the, on the screen, the Lord will be king over the whole earth, and on that day there will be one Lord, and his name will be the only name. Now, can you imagine what it was like to be growing up at that time, the time of Jesus? As a young Jewish boy, perhaps, or as a grown man, and you're going to the synagogue, and you're listening to these words, and you're praying prayers like this, here's a prayer that we know was from the liturgy of the synagogue at the time of Jesus. These are the words they were praying. You can hear the echo of the Lord's Prayer that we just said earlier that Jesus used. This is what he would have prayed as a boy. I quote, exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he created according to his will. May he, that is God, may God let his kingdom rule in our lifetime and in our days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. That's what they were praying at the time of Jesus. That was the synagogue prayer. And it's into that kind of expectation and hope and longing that Jesus comes and says, it's here. The good news is, the reign of God that you've been longing for, it's come. Why? Because I'm here. 
So we've been seeing all these weeks that the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ are more or less the same because Jesus has come as the Lord. God himself has stepped into his own story, story of the scriptures. God has come as king to put things right, but not as you expected because he has come in the person of this carpenter's son from Nazareth born in obscurity in Bethlehem. So you see, what's going on here? What's this going to really be like then if this God has come as King Jesus? Well, that's what Jesus is going to explain in these parables and, of course, in many other parables. We've just got two here in this chapter of Mark, but as you know, probably in the other Gospels, there are many ways in which Jesus tries to explain what he means by God being at work in the world now through him. God's kingdom has come in King Jesus, and it's all very different from what you were expecting. It's not a kingdom based on tyranny, but servanthood. When Jesus is king, it's not going to be violence, but suffering. It's not going to be a matter of status, but servanthood. He said, I've come not to be served, but to serve. It's not a matter of greatness, but being like a child. With Jesus as king, it's not a question of killing your enemies, but loving them. And especially, it's not all at once. It has come, but it's a process that is going to go on for some time. The kingdom of God has come, but they were saying, well, if the kingdom of God has come, why are we still here? Why hasn't the end of the world actually happened? Why hasn't everything been transformed and restored? And Jesus, yes, it has come, but it's like yeast that has been dropped into the dough. It's going to bubble for a while before you get a full loaf. It's like a net that's been cast in the sea. There's a bit of work to be done to bring the fish in. And here in these two parables, he says, it's like seed. And he's making the same point. There's always a time gap, isn't there, between sowing seed and the seed growing and bearing fruit. And in the case of farming, having a harvest. So Jesus is saying, yes, look, the kingdom of God is here now in me. And as Mark will go on to say, not only in his life and his teaching, but of course in his death and his resurrection. The kingdom of God has come, but God is going to go on being king in the world and among his people until the time comes when God establishes kingship fully in the new creation. It's now and it's not yet. That's why in the Lord's Prayer that we prayed a few minutes ago, we were able to say two things about the kingdom of God, weren't we? We were able to say, yours is the kingdom. The Lord is king. And yet we also prayed, may your kingdom come, we prayed. May your will be done on earth as in heaven. So it's now because God is at work in the world now and already, ever since Jesus came and announced it and preached the good news and died and rose again, the seed was sown. The seed of God's word doing its work through the power of God in the world. But it's not yet, because God's work in the world is not finished yet until Jesus comes again. And then the seed that Jesus sowed in his first coming will have produced that vast harvest at his second coming. 
So that's basically what Jesus is talking about in these two parables. But each of them, which we need to look at for a few moments, each of them makes a slightly different point for the encouragement of his disciples and for our encouragement. And here's the first, that the growth of God's kingdom doesn't depend on us, although it certainly involves us. Look again at those verses 26 to 29. Uh, Just let me quickly read them again. Just bring it back into our minds. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, and night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. He doesn't know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel. And as soon as it's ripe, he puts his sickle in, and the harvest has come. So Jesus tells another farming story, doesn't it? Just like the seed parable earlier in the chapter. But this time, in a way, it sort of sidelines the role of the the farmer, doesn't he? All the farmer does, he scatters the seed, and then he reaps the harvest. Any farmer, of course, there's a good bit more to it than that. Uh, But Jesus is not thinking about that. What he's saying is that the seed itself just grows as the farmer goes about his everyday life without his interference, and even without his understanding. Just all by itself, says Jesus. It's a very interesting word. The soil and the seed produce the growth and the grain and the harvest. And it doesn't depend upon the farmer doing anything, except that he scattered the seed. God's work in the world doesn't depend on us even though it does involve us. Now, it involves us, and that's quite important, because you remember just before this, Jesus had said, look, with the measure that you measure, it'll be measured to you, so make sure that you get involved in what God is doing. As I said last week, when Jesus is around and God shows up, then bring a shovel, not a teaspoon. You know, there's a lot to receive, there's a lot to be done, so be diligent. And also back in chapter 1, when he announced the kingdom of God had come, the first thing he did was to call some disciples, volunteers, to go and get people to enter into the kingdom of God. So there is work to be done, but it doesn't depend on that. I think of the Apostle Paul uh, in the book of Acts, where we read that Paul, of course, was a great church planter. There's the language of sowing again. He was the evangelist, and Apollos, who followed him, was a great church teacher. He was a theological educator. But listen to what Paul says to the people in Corinth. He says, I planted the seed. That's to say, I brought you the gospel so that you believed. I planted the seed with you. And Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. That's exactly Jesus' point that the growth of God's kingdom involves us, but it doesn't depend on us. And I think there's a caution in that, isn't there? There's a caution not to be obsessed with all our plans and our strategies and our programs and our initiatives, and then we somehow forget that it all really depends on God. Some of you know that I work for the Langham Partnership, uh, a ministry started by John Stott many years ago. We've got a strategic plan. Here it is. There's about 100 pages in here. This is all the things we're going to be doing over the next five to ten years. This is our strategic detailed plan. And it's had a lot of work in that and a lot of involvement, a lot of people in that plan. 
But we're not naive enough to think that God's work in the world through the Langham Partnership simply depends on us having a good plan. It depends on God. And that's why we pray about it. And then we think, of course, of ourselves as a church here, don't we? We're into the Christmas season, and a huge amount of planning and effort has gone in to these carol services and that wonderful Christmas concert last night, and to all that's going to happen over these next few weeks. A great deal that involves a lot of us. But we know that ultimately the results of all that we do depend upon God himself. It's the Holy Spirit who will bring people to hear the word and to respond to the word. We're involved, but it depends on God. So it's a caution against being obsessed with our strategies, but it's also, isn't it, it's a comfort for us against anxiety. I mean, let God be God. Leave the results to him. His word has a power of its own. The word of God is the the power of God to salvation, says Paul about the gospel. And Paul also says in Colossians that the gospel itself, he said, is growing and bearing fruit all over the world. The gospel has power. The word of God has power. We need, therefore, not to be too anxious about it when we do our thing. There's a lovely saying that I like from Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, who said this on one occasion. He said, you know, I did a lot of stuff, all the indulgence, everything else, but he said, I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. And otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank my little glass of Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word of God was at work. The word did everything. In another version of the same saying, perhaps he said it more than once, it is that while I drank my little glass of Wittenberg beer with my friend Philip of Melanchthon, the kingdom of God was advancing. I rather like that. Perhaps it's a kind of hint of an invitation to come to Stag's Head uh, after the evening service. You can ask Nigel if he's got any Wittenberg beer. I don't think he's got that there, but you could at least ask him the question. God is at work. The kingdom of God and its growth doesn't depend on us, even though it involves us. And then the other parable says this. Secondly, that the small beginnings of God's kingdom shouldn't deceive us because the growth is astonishing. That's Jesus' second picture, isn't it? And it's a pretty big surprise. What should we say the kingdom of God is like? It's like a mustard seed. (laughs) It's so surprising. Remember, you're listening to Jesus, and he's talking about the kingdom of God, and in your understanding from your scriptures and all the worship every Sabbath day, the kingdom of God is a very big deal. I mean, the Old Testament scriptures talk about, you know, mountains being shifted around the place. It talks about, you know, signs in the heavens and all that. It talks about a great rock that will come and shatter the kingdoms of man. Sometimes it talks about a vast cedar tree that will fill the whole earth, according to Ezekiel. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what the kingdom of God's like, like a mustard seed. And we know that in Jesus' day, that was proverbial for the smallest thing you could think of. You know, in English, ju- just a tad, uh, just a little smidgen. You, you like some milk in your tea? Oh, yeah, just a drop. Something absolutely tiny is what Jesus is saying. Yes, it seems so small, so insignificant, but just wait and see. That mustard seed, says Jesus, as they knew, would grow into one of the largest of the shrubs of that time, a great bush that would be two or three meters tall. 
You see, when God gets to work in small ways, the growth is astonishing. And that's pretty obvious, actually, when you think about it, in terms of the phenomenal growth of the kingdom of God through the history of the church and the spread of the gospel for the last 2,000 years. I mean, when Jesus died, he left 11 disciples out of the original 12, because you remember that one betrayed him, one denied him, and all the rest ran away. And yet, within 30 years or so of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel had reached across into Europe and through North Africa and right into the very heart of the Roman Empire in the city of Rome. Within a hundred years of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel had reached down into Sudan, to the great black African kingdom of Nubia, and east into Persia. Within about 300 years of the death of Jesus, there were Christian kingdoms in Ethiopia, in Armenia, and in Georgia. And before the end of that century, the whole Roman Empire had accepted Christianity as their official state religion. By 400 years after the death of Christ, the gospel had reached Afghanistan and there were Christian bishops in Herat, in what we now call Afghanistan, in the far eastern edges of the world. And it also, by that time, had reached the far western edges of the world to a little island off the very edge of the Roman Empire called Ireland, through Patrick. And by 600 years after Jesus, the gospel had reached China, Today, one-third of the world's population would claim to be followers of Christ in one way or another, which sort of puts into perspective the census figures in Britain, don't you think? God makes small things grow big, and he still does. I mean, this is the great thing about, uh, about this small beginning of the kingdom of God. He keeps doing it. He keeps planting mustard seeds and letting them grow by the power of God in ways we can't otherwise explain. In October 2001, John Stott, who was the then was rector emeritus of, of here at All Souls, took me along with him to one preaching seminar in Peru. There were about 30 men and women there. It was the very first uh, of these preaching seminars. We didn't even yet call it Langham Preaching, but that was the beginning, just 20 years ago. Today, according to the Langham Preaching Report, which is dated September 2022, there are 104 national movements for Langham Preaching in 95 different countries, being led by 670 local facilitators, organized and led by 34 continental and regional coordinators in Latin America and Africa and in Asia. And in that last year, up to September 2022, 9,813 preachers had been trained with an estimated number of people hearing the word through them of 785,000 people. That's 20 years of God growing mustard seeds around the world because of the power of his word and God saying, I want my word to be heard and to be taught and to be preached. So that's the second point then, that the small beginnings of God's kingdom shouldn't deceive us or discourage us because growth is amazing. And here's the third point, which comes in a sense from the ending of both the parables, which, which I didn't really emphasize up to this point. And that is that at the end of the day, God's kingdom won't disappoint us because it will be God's new creation. 
See, I don't know if you noticed, but at the end of both parables, there's a climax. In verse 29, when the seed has grown, the grain is ripe, the man puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And that sickle and harvest is a known image from the Old Testament of God's final judgment. There is a judgment to come. God is going to put things right. And in the other parable, verse 32, the birds will come and nest under the shade or in the branches of the mustard bush that has grown from the little seed. And again, that birds coming to nest was an Old Testament image sometimes used of the nations of the world being gathered to know and to worship the God of Israel and to acknowledge him as God. That was part of the great hopes and promises of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying is here is, yeah, I know it isn't all happening now, but the day will come when those great promises of the Scriptures will be fulfilled when Jesus comes again in glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. And you see, that is where the Bible story ends, or we might say where it begins again, because it's not so much an ending as a new beginning. But you remember what John saw, the, the John who writes the book of Revelation? He says, he's looking as it were at the vision of God's great kingdom in its fullness. And in chapter 7 he says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language. As if God is saying to Abraham, you know, Abraham, I said, all nations will be blessed through you, and all nations it is. Mission accomplished. And what are they doing? They're standing before the throne of God. God is king, and they're singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, meaning the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Or as he says a little bit later in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And that last great vision of the scripture in Revelation chapter 21, where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation, he says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God as king among his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death. No more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne, the king, says, Look, I'm making everything new. God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people, that is, the whole redeemed humanity from every nation and earth in God's place that is the new creation, new heaven and new earth under God's rule when there will be perfect peace and justice and love. So that's the message then. There we have it. That Jesus, the Lord Jesus is king. Our God reigns. But we need to conclude. We need to ask, well, so what? What do we take away from this? Let me just say three possible things as we conclude. First of all, what it tells us is keep scattering the seed. Let God be God and don't fret about being small. Most of you will have to go back to work tomorrow in one way or another. Go back 
as the bearers of the seed of God's kingdom. Because in a sense, that's what you are. Live as a follower of King Jesus. Do what is right. Do the good things. Be kind. Speak a word. Share your faith. Be salt, a little grain of salt and a piece of light in the world. And don't worry about being so small because as we've seen, God will make it grow. Let God be God in ways that you may never know. That's the first thing. And the second thing, I think, is look for the mustard seeds of God at work in the world. As I said this last week, are we really God-conscious enough every day? as we go about our daily work, as we live in this culture that we're in. It's so easy, isn't it, to be swamped with so many other voices. Perhaps that's why Jesus said in the preceding verse, be careful what you hear, he says. Consider what you hear. Are we listening to all the voices of the world, or are we sometimes listening to say, where is God in this? As we watch the news, as we read our newspaper, as we wallow in social media or whatever it is, where is God in the world In my own circumstances, can I see the hand of God in these things? Remembering that we live by faith, not by sight. So look for God at work, even in the little things that God is doing. Look for the mustard seeds of the kingdom of God in the world. And finally, let's make sure that we wait in Advent hope. Because King Jesus is risen, is Reigning, He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, he says in Revelation 1. And he is returning. In other words, this time, Advent, is exactly the time to be thinking of this. That we are waiting, like those people of Israel all through the Old Testament, waiting and waiting and waiting for God to come. And Jesus says, I've come, here I am, God's with you. Similarly, we are waiting and waiting and waiting for God to come. And Jesus says, I am coming. I'm coming soon and I'm coming quickly. The Lord will come. That's what Advent is all about. And so therefore, those are three things. Keep scattering the seed, look for the mustard seeds of God at work, and wait in hope. Because the future, you see, the future belongs to the kingdom of God. Jesus shall reign throughout the whole world. The ends of the earth belong to him. So let's then answer his call. Let's pray. Oh Lord, God, our Father, our King, our Saviour, our Judge, we thank you, Lord, that Jesus came not only preaching the kingdom of God, but explaining it with such, in a sense, such wonderful simplicity, and yet challenging us with these little stories to help us to see something of what your reign is all about. Help us, therefore, to live as those who have entered into the reign of King Jesus and are living under his authority and his rules and looking forward to his future and to his return. We ask it in his name. Amen.